Hello, Patronormalist. Thank you once again for your contribution to the podcast. You're keeping us on the air and we appreciate it. Here is uh, story number 18. Hi, Kenny. Hi. So tonight I was going to talk a little bit about, we had talked about white women and stories that were kind of ambiguous. And I said there was a story I was going to tell that started out ambiguous and very well might have a completely different conclusion. And we live in central Pennsylvania. So the the main ghost story probably and certainly the most popular white, white woman story in central Pennsylvania is that of the lady of the buckhorn. And the story basically is that there was this young lady she fell in love with a gentleman and her father disapproved now the time frame is very ambiguous it goes everywhere from the 1800s to the 1930s or 40s and depending on who tells the story and basically she fell in love with this gentleman the boy the boy suggested a day elope she agrees to it so they set the day and time wait till middle of the night and then they elope her father is somehow alerted and gets in his car and he's following them or in his wagon, depending on who's telling the story and chases them down the buckhorn. Well, the buckhorn is a very long, steep and twisty um, road. And there's a place on it called the devil's elbow. And it was at the devil's elbow or very near that area where they lost control of whatever vehicle they had. And the young couple um, went flying. Well, she died. In the, in the impact of the vehicle or whatever it was, wagon vehicle, whatever. Carriage. He did yeah. not. Exactly. <clears throat> and he did not. So the story began um, very shortly thereafter that somebody was coming down late at night on the buckhorn, got to the devil's elbow, and they both, both stories have been told that she's been seen standing along the road there and that she will appear in the back of vehicles. Um, I've talked to multiple people who tell me that they have like been driving down the road, got to that area and looked in the rear view mirrors or driving and saw a girl sitting in the back seat. You know, that's obviously paralyzingly frightening. And you, you kind of look in the corner of your eye, there's nobody there. But when you look back at the mirror, there she sits and she travels with them for quite a while. And then, you know, then disappears. A lot of them people claim that it was couples that like when she's with a uh there's a couple going down the side of the mountain there that they'll they'll see her and the, th the theory is that she is still looking for her boyfriend because he didn't die with her and so she doesn't know what happened to him um the other <clears throat> the other story is that she's seen along the road as a um both as just a tragic figure in a white dress and also some people say that when they get close to her and she looks at their car, she has no face. And that's also um, a classic feature of some white woman stories. Now, it's very ambiguous, as I said. But about two years ago, I was contacted by a researcher who does a podcast out in the Midwest. And he said, I, I read your story and I, I really love this story. And I've spent a lot of time researching the story. And I think I have an answer. And he said, would you come on the podcast and then I'll explain it all to you. And I said, sure. And I got on. And then he told me, he said he had spent nine months approximately um, researching the story because he believed that there had to be some facts behind it. And what he discovered was that at 
an area called the Devil's Elbow in, I believe, 1937, there was a young couple who was um, actually, I don't believe they were eloping, but they were on a date and um, they were in a car accident there. And she died in the car accident. The young man did not. And it's right after that, within like six months after that, that the first white woman story seems to have been um, told. The best he can, you know, obviously people could tell it verbally for a while before it gets into print. But the ver first print version of it, which was a newspaper account, was about six to eight months after this car accident, leading him to believe that this might be the genesis for the story. So there may actually be some some research behind it. Um, uh, we'll have to have him on and have him tell about his part of the story because I think it's fascinating. And he does a lot of um, folklore and what have you and goes and tries to do the research behind him to see if there's any truth to him. So he's a very interesting podcaster. What's his podcast called? I don't remember off the top of my head or I would have said it already. I'll have to look it up for you because I have the notes he sent me. Okay, we'll link it. But um, what's, I mean, what other things have happened with that? Like you told one uh, that I'm going to release on episode zero of a guy uh, in a bar. But do you have any other ones of this particular spirit? Um, I told you the story, didn't I, about the gentleman at the bar, right? That's yes. That's the one you talked about. Okay. That's, yeah. Because uh, you kind of faded out there for me for a second. I wanted to make sure. Um, I had that story and of course I've heard a lot of other stories about people who've passed her and she's looked at them and, and been, um, faceless, things of that nature. But there's one story in particular that came to me years and years ago. There was a gentleman named John who, um, started showing up at my book signings and he was very much the dedicated fan. John was an awesome person. I got to know him because he was him and his girlfriend were always at the book signings in the local area. And he was on dialysis and he would take my books to the dialysis place and read the stories to the other people on dialysis <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> out loud. And when he died, his girlfriend got a hold of me and said, John left you a memento. It's a little notebook that he scribbled some stuff in for you. And what was in the notebook were these amazing stories from John's life um, and stories he had heard that he wanted to tell me, but we just never had a chance to talk about them. And I still have the little notebook. And uh, one of the stories was this one. He, when he was young, um, his, he never really knew his father. So his mother got him in the big sister, big brother program. And the guy that was his big brother was a truck driver. This would have been late seventies. So at that time frame, you could take people on rigs with you. Today, it's a lot more strict and <clears throat> because of insurance and stuff. But back then, people could just hop a ride on the rig with the driver. And he would. The guy would come and pick him up for like when he had like day runs. And he would take him with him on the weekends on day runs and during the summer. And one night they had a day run and something went wrong. So it, it lasted a lot longer than they anticipated. And it was middle of the night as they're coming down over the buckhorn. And they saw a young woman walking along in a really lonesome part of the buckhorn, which if you've ever driven it, there are huge stretches where there's no homes, there's no, no businesses, there's nothing. So he um, 
they the truck driver pulled was pulled over and he said to him he said john get in the back he said this young lady needs a ride and he got out and he said to the girl are you okay and she shook her head and um he opened the door and he said if you want to come in and i'll take you back down to town and she nodded and got in the car and the in the the rig he shut the door he ran back around and got in the other side and eased it back out onto the road. And as they're going down, he's trying to make conversation. And John said he was sitting in the back. He was maybe 13 years old, at the most 14. And, and um, watching the two of them talk. And, you know, the guy was saying, well, you know, the kid back here is my foster son or my, uh, you know, my big brother for, for him. And, you know, um, we're coming back from, he's just talking, making talk, small talk, right? And the girl didn't say anything. She would nod. And she looked out the window a couple of times. And then uh, the driver got his attention, got sidetracked because of the road. It was late at night. It's twisty and turny. And he was paying attention to the highway. I don't even ever envy anybody who drives a rig because that has to be very tough to drive something that large through such twisty, turny, tight spaces as they have to go through. And when he looked back over, she was gone. And John said he had been with the guy driving. And he said, when I looked back over, she was gone. The door didn't open. Nobody said anything. They never slowed down enough to jump out. She was just gone. And he said that they talked about it later. And he said, I know it sounds crazy. But I honestly believe we saw the white and we gave her a ride. But down below the devil's elbow, she just disappeared. Yeah, the devil's elbow is the key component. That's where she always disappears. And if you've, I mean, the devil's elbow. That's where she died. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I used to go camping up up in uh, Prince Gallitzin uh-huh. State Park. So that's the way we would go every single time since I was a baby. Uh, and... I mean, I never saw anything, but you just get this weird feeling around that sharp curve that, I don't know, you're going to see something on the side of the road or something. And I always felt that way before I even knew there was a ghost story because I didn't know many ghost stories growing up. My parents Mm -hmm. never really talked about, you know, spooky stories or anything like that to me. So I didn't know it. I was just like, you know, every now and then I would just go, huh? And and I didn't know why, you know, I didn't even think I saw anything. I was just like you know, what, what's, uh, this all about. So maybe I was feeling stuff back then too, but, um, driving it myself. I mean, that's a very lonely highway. No one would ever walk. You, I mean, you really can't, you're going to get killed if you do that, you know? Right. Um, and that's the thing is like, we talk about being a highway and people think, well, there's got to be houses and cars and, you know, and, and all these businesses there aren't. Mm-hmm. It, it's just nothing but woods and and you know abandoned fields and now windmills and or and, yeah fans yeah they have the windmills up there now and i'm not even sure if there used to be a bar at the top of it and it's gone by many names over the years and it doesn't um the last i saw it had been closed but it, at one point they was they were calling it the white lady yeah um in honor of her but um you know, there's just not a lot of traffic up there. You don't encounter more than three or four cars as you're going across it most of the time. Can you imagine, though, that people used to take their carriages up there? Yeah. Can you imagine a horse having to hoof all the way up there? 
I have the same feeling Jeez. whenever I'm going up the mountains um, headed from um, Bedford towards Pittsburgh. They call them, I could see why General Washington called them the endless mountains because they just never stop. And I can't imagine trying to cut the cut your way through there mm-hmm. and then roll cannons and wagons across that. Yep. It's no wonder they made two miles a day. Yep. Well, that's why the King of England didn't even want Pennsylvania. When they sent scouts uh, to Pennsylvania, they, they got here and went, all it is is woods. <laughs> and yep. then they went back and reported that it was just woods. So when uh, William Penn's like, hey, can I have this? The king's like, I don't care, whatever. <laughs> yeah, he, owed, he owed Penn's father a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. And he was just so. like, yeah, I mean, no, don't take it. No. <laughs> you know, but secretly he's like, yes, got rid of that forest. All right. Yeah, so it was Penn's Woods, and that's why it was called Penn's Woods. Yeah, but I can't even imagine doing anything before roads in this whole state, to be honest. I don't think anybody but would go I, anywhere. Yeah. I would just stay in my home hometown forever. Well, exactly. That's what people did. They, yeah. I mean, it was a huge journey to go any place. I can remember, you know, um, hearing people talk about never leaving their hometown. Mm-hmm. Everything was consolidated. The idea that, you know, you crossed an entire county day, like I cross, you know, a county practically every single day. I drive at least 100 miles a day, mm-hmm. at least. Yeah, Jenna does too. You know, for my job. And um, the idea that you would do that, other, the only people that did that were the the traveling pedal, peddlers and stuff. You know, those were the only people that went to all that trouble. Right. Yeah. Did you know that we're the turnpike is the first super highway ever? We revolutionized that whole thing. I, I thought that was we cool. We revolutionized a lot of things. We Pennsylvania, created yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, the first, uh, the Zippo lighters and the first penitentiary to ever be built was built in Philadelphia, Eastern State Pen. That's cool. Did it you was, know? it's, it, it, it's, it's a tragic story in a lot of ways because, um, you know, Benjamin Franklin and a huge group of Quakers got together and decided to build this penitentiary. And the whole idea of the penitentiary was to not be a place of punishment, to be a place where you could be penitent. Yeah. Which is why the word penitentiary. And um, didn't really reflect, work out, did it? It didn't and reflect <laughs> on your sins. But what it ended up being is this horrible place of sensory deprivation. It drove people insane. Yeah. Oh, did they create sensory deprivation? Uh, solitary confinement because they thought it would help you think well what they yeah basically what they did is they put you in a small cell you had one window and it was called the eye of god yeah and it was a little tiny slit in the ceiling and then you were kept completely quiet and they even had the um guards put socks over their shoes so you'd hear no sound senses of input Mm. and you couldn't you you know people would sit there and talk to themselves and make noise because they they needed that sound that input and they the guards would be you know very ferocious with you over that and um the whole idea was for you to sit there quietly in penance reflecting but what it ended up doing is creating this vacuum of sensory deprivation and everybody being in solitary confinement for however long you were there and people went crazy yep i wonder if they tap into something I mean, maybe it's crazy, but I wonder if they like tap in and see things that we never think about because it's such a deep, you know, depravity of of um, sensory stuff. 
I don't know, but I do know that we are going to be doing a episode of storytelling and the stories are going to be from um, asylums and prisons and things like that. And I have one heck of a great story to share. Tease. So, I know, but I'm looking for like <laughs> I I like I fell in love with this story when I first found it, and I actually had to sit down and write it that very day just because I needed to work my way through that story. It just immersed me, hmm. and um, I really I really loved it. So I can't wait to share it with everybody. Awesome! So look forward to that, patron normalist, and we'll catch you later. Yes. <laughs>